kindness, compassion. Uh, when you walk through a crowd, instead of judging what, how people are dressed and what kind of jewelry they have on, as I said in my book, try to find a saint. Scour the, 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 the crowd for a saint when you're in the mall. You might find one saints have to buy shoes too. And even if you never find one, the way you look at people is different. Because instead of scanning their clothes, their, their body, their face, their jewelry, you're looking into their eyes. You're looking at their countenance, to use an old English word, their countenance. And so people react to us differently. It changes the initial reaction, uh, interaction if we actually start talking to that person. It's like he looked at me unlike anyone who's ever looked at me. It's because I'm looking for a saint. I wanted to look inside you and see what you are, who you are, as opposed to, wow, she looks great in that dress, you know, uh, but who is she? She might be the most interesting person I ever meet or speak with, or that person over there who's not so nice to look at might be the most important person I meet in my lifetime in terms of how they affect me in a conversation. But if we're always looking at the same things, we miss most people as they walk by us. You'd miss, uh, I like to say to Christians, Jesus Christ could walk right by you, you'd never see him. Hey everybody and welcome to Take a Deep Breath. Today's BreathCast guest is Mr. Max Strom. I'll just give you a little flavour of his bio, but I will say this before we go any further. A fantastic BreathCast with one of my favourite guests. Oh my gosh. There's a lot to unpack here. So who's Max? Uh, Max is a TED speaker, uh, a global breathing teacher. Uh, Max Strom developed breakthrough innovations in using breathing patterns to alleviate crippling anxiety by focusing on the causes rather than the symptoms. His method is known to produce rapid results in alleviating extreme stress, anxiety and post-traumatic stress and some sleep disorders. He's an author of two books. Um, There is no app for happiness, uh, addressing the challenge of finding meaning in a digital age. And the book that I'm currently listening to, uh, A Life Worth Breathing, which has been published in five languages. Um, He's a screenwriter, a yoga teacher, uh, published uh, in the music industry. It's really hard to to, to kind of pigeonhole uh, Max. Um, and he's so calm and relaxed. Um, uh, and so even now, an hour after we finished recording, it's just a, a wave of something. You know, we had a conversation through Zoom and yet something's able to transfer over for me to feel a bit calmer and a bit more peaceful. Um, we go deep in in this conversation. You know, when I was listening to the audio book, um, A Life Worth Breathing, I was expecting a load of breathing exercises and you know, it's so much deeper than that. It's the spiritual side and um, anxiety and stress and yoga and so much more. Um, and I've been wanting to speak to Max for, for well over a year. So I'm so glad we were able to, to get this time. It's a it's a real privilege. Um, he, he's in, in Holland right now and I'm in the UK. So there wasn't so much of a time difference. Um, and yeah, we, we talk about all sorts of things. So you, get, you, you know, you're going to want to get a cup of tea and get comfortable for this. You know, we're talking about grief, uh, emotions coming up and how we suppress them and how to how to deal with that. Um, talking about yoga, we're talking about deep into his journey, um, how we judge people 
and, and how to get around it. And something which I'm very uncomfortable with, which is the spiritual side. You know, somebody that goes around saying that he's an atheist and uh, doesn't really believe in much and has said that story for, for many years. Um, it's very interesting to hear Max talk about the spiritual side. And, and just a few chapters into his audiobook, I've already um, started to think a bit differently, or at least opened myself up to the possibility of something else going on there which is very exciting and gives a bit of peace um so so yeah i i I won't do justice to an hour and a half's worth of breath cast here so we'll we'll obviously get stuck in in a second um i've linked down below to to max's uh credentials ted talks all that sort of stuff i really do recommend the ted talk breathe to heal which will be the title of his new book um so it's worth checking out i think it's like 15 minutes long it's a really really good uh ted talk about breathing it's had like 2.6 million views as, as of today um, but his website's on there. He's got breathing course. He's got books. I'll link all that sort of stuff below if you want to work with Max or learn more. Um, often I get comments. Thank you so much for, for introducing me to X, Y, or Z person. So if you know who Max is, I think this is a wonderful addition where maybe you've, you'll hear some things you haven't heard before. Um, but for those that don't know who Max Strom is, I think this will be a really great intro into him and the whole other piece of breathing with 35 40 hours worth into into breath casts now you think how much is there to talk about breathing and even I think at what point is enough enough where we've talked about breathing and then every now and again you get something like this and you're like, oh my goodness there we can go so much deeper because yes box breathing is important coherent breathing is incredible you know the Wim Hof breathing can change your life and there's all these different breathing exercises but then if you take a step back from the exercises and you start to look at all the things that surround it, so it's, it's it, you know, it's uh, obviously something I'm very passionate about anyway. Um, so for me to get even more passionate, it's, 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 it's uh, yeah, it's really cool. So, so I hope you enjoy this couple of messages before we get stuck in them. Um, this episode is brought to you in conjunction with my new YouTube channel, which is called Binaural Beats Unleashed. Very new. Um, thank you to those that have already popped over there to subscribe. I use binaural beats. They're great with headphones. Different frequencies and patterns that can do different things to your brain waves. Um, I often use it with things like box breathing. Um, and or um, if I'm trying to get some work done, I'll normally just go on YouTube and type in study music. And some binaural beats at a certain frequency will turn up. Helps me get into the zone. You know, I'm not being distracted by different lyrics. So it's very, very new. Uh, I'm working with a number of different artists to get different binaural beats out there, which has the power to really help us focus, relax, meditate. Or if you're like me, sometimes you don't want to be guided in breath work. You want to just do something that feels good for you. Uh, and so guided breath work is really important and the reason why a lot of us are here. But sometimes it's good to freestyle it as well. And so you can just pop on some binaural beats and you can just relax and get into the zone and just breathe however you want to breathe for 15 minutes or an hour, whatever that looks like. So um, if you could click on the link below, uh, hit that subscribe button, that would really help me out, grow that channel. Um, I really appreciate it. And like I said, thank you to all those that have done so. And if there's a certain frequency or, or oh, I'm looking for a certain type of music to do X, Y, or Z, pop that in the description here in the links, uh, in the comments, or, or, or do that on the other channel. Um, and I'll go out there and I'll, I'll find that for you as well. Um, and that's it. That's the only message really today. So yeah, so binaural beats unleashed. Um, I'm so excited to share this 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 breathcast with you. So I'm going to get this one straight out. It's I think it's like a Thursday today. I'm going to get it on Sunday. Um, so it's like end of July at the minute here in the UK. 
So I'm off for a couple of days now. So I'm going to get this finished now and get this straight up. So without further ado, I introduce to you Mr. Max Strom. Take it away. Cheers. Okay, so we are recording. Mr. Max Strom, good morning to you, sir. Uh, first good morning, all, Mike. How, how are you doing today? I'm quite excellent, thank you. How are you doing? I'm very good. Um, I absolutely love listening to your voice. Um, so I was trying not to give say too much before we hit record, but um, I've had um, A Life Worth Breathing, the audiobook, in my ears, and it's been the favourite part of my mornings walking my, my German Shepherd puppy. <laughs> we'll go for a walk and I'll put your, your book in. I'll listen to your really calm voice. And even now, actually, people that have watched the podcast, I just feel a bit calmer just talking to you and listening to your, your lovely tones. So, um, so yeah, really, Thank really you. excited about today. Um, so I think if you wouldn't mind, just as a bit of a starter, would you give people just a little bit of a flavour about your background? Because I think it's always interesting to know where people have come from and how they found breath for themselves. Yes, of course. And uh, my background is not go in a straight line. I have a very zigzag, uh, um, even a circular, uh, spiraling kind of uh, history. But um, let's see if I can do it really succinctly. I'm going to challenge myself. And so I'll start with this. I was a 12-pound baby, so that's double the size of a normal baby, uh, for those of you converting to metric now. Um my mother was not a large woman, so my birth was difficult. I had club feet when I was born, uh, so that's, that was fairly severe, and I had to have surgeries and plaster casts and um, braces and things like that for the first nine years of my life, more than half the time. And uh, that affected me, of course, in terms of learning to endure pain and confinement and not being able to do things that other kids could do, but eventually my feet worked fairly well and I could play sports and things like that. And uh, although I, I ta- taught yoga for a great deal of my life, I'm not your typical looking yoga teacher in that I'm I'm almost two meters tall, six foot six. I look more like an American football player than a, uh, a your classic, you know, very tiny slender man with a man bun, which is <laughs> the look these days for yoga teachers. Um so I don't really fit into categories very well. And uh, then on top of all that, I was pretty heavily into athletics when I was 14, 15. And then I had this little tiny awakening experience. And please don't, don't misunderstand me. I don't say I became enlightened. But I had a little awakening where uh, even though I was very young, 15 years old, I really sincerely delved into why are we here? Where are we going? Is there an afterlife? Is there a God? Are there gods? Um, can you predict the future? All, all of that I wanted to know. I didn't want to just jump on an idea or follow a guru. And so I started reading very intensely comparative religion and psychology at that early age. And so uh, I didn't fit into my society so well at high school. Um, I discovered music uh, I started doing that uh, concurrently, but uh, in my quest, I started uh, meditating at age 16, and at age 18, started Qigong. I, there was a great Qigong teacher in my town. So that's, for your audience, that's Chinese breathing exercises that were originally influenced by the yoga breathing exercises that were carried to uh, China around 750 AD. Um, 
I, I didn't learn them then. I'm not quite that old, but uh, I learned them in uh, the mid 70s. And I really found uh, extraordinary results from doing Qigong, including after I had a major surgery on my arm, I broke my elbow. Um, I could use it for pain control. It was unbelievable. I could go from severe pain to zero pain in about 15 minutes of breathing. So that's when I really learned that, okay, there's really something to this. And uh, I, I was in the music business for a number of years. I had two records out in the early 80s. I took a year off to write a screenplay because I was also a film buff and I, I, everybody told me I was a good storyteller. And I wrote a screenplay and I got a lot of attention. And I was dating a, an actress at the time, a Hollywood actress. And uh, so I got in, introduced to that world and I thought, you know, I think I'm going to take a year and, and write it, write the screenplay. I have this great idea. So I did. And I ended up never going back to the music business because it was a, it's a very difficult business. In the music business, you tend to either live in poverty or you can become very wealthy. I mostly lived in poverty, even though I had my records out and was touring. And at, at some point, you get tired of sleeping on people's couches. So I uh, became a screenwriter. I had about eight movies made. And while I was doing that, I lived uh, four, four blocks from the best yoga studio in the United States. And uh, I started dating a woman uh, who was very much into yoga and nutrition. And so she, on my birthday, my 35th birthday, took me to my first hatha yoga class and um i really hated it i i absolutely despised it i wrote an article about it called stiff white male um, because at that time there was a very popular film out called single white female was the, the number one film so i called it stiff white male and it was uh, published in yoga journal um, but the next day i felt so good and i slept so well that i thought once again i've discovered something i've struck gold you know and so while I was writing um, my movies, I started practicing six days a week. And I brought in uh, what breathing knowledge I had and added it to the breathing I was being taught in yoga. And the, the yoga breathing that I learned through Ashtanga yoga was very meaningful to me because it was very deep ujjayi breathing, which I call ocean breathing. Mm -hmm. And what started happening, and this is where we get more to the present and what I'm working on now, is... After every class, I would be emotional. Mm. I would lie down, you know, the resting part, and I would have tears trickling down my face. And I thought, what is this? Because I didn't even have an association to what it was. I wasn't going through a particularly hard time. And finally, I met a yoga teacher who explained that this is your past, my past. There are things that were unprocessed that were just shoved down the way I was taught to do as a, as a large American man. And you, you Brits can certainly understand that, you know, stiff upper lip, get on with it, all that. Yeah. And so uh, there's a tremendous cost to doing that. And when you hold that level of um, of grief and pain that you've been through in your life, unexpressed, unhealed, your breath accesses that. Of course, often yoga teachers don't even know that and they don't tell their students that. Mm. So for a full year, I would have tears trickling down my face at the end of class. I wasn't sobbing or anything, but no one knew but me. But after about a year, it was over. And I would have people tell me that 
I've noticed a change in you, Max. You seem happier. You smile more. You laugh more. You seem more easygoing. You're, you're, I've never seen you in a dark mood now for the last year, things like that. I was practicing six days a week. And so what I realized was by processing at least to a certain degree this grief that was in me from the past, I became a happier person. And at the end of my practices, I would feel incredible where I would just sit outside. I was in Los Angeles, so it was warm enough to sit outside and sit there in not want of anything. I just felt blissful after every one of my practices. So after about three or four years of doing that, I started teaching. That was my side thing while I was writing. And after one year of teaching, I thought, that's it. I'm getting out of this ridiculous movie business because this is the way to go. The teaching is unbelievable. You get in a room with a group of people and at the end of your session, everybody feels better without exception. And they come up and they say thank you and they hug you and they leave. There are very few jobs like that in the world where you're, you know you're contributing in the present moment. And besides paying you, they're actually thanking you on top of that because they think they ha- paying you isn't even enough for what you've contributed to them. So I became known as the breathing guy, the breathing teacher, the one who will make you breathe. And, um, and gradually over the years, it's become more and more my specialty. I've been teaching for 26 years now. And uh, it used to be when I would teach at conferences, yoga conferences in the US and Europe, uh, that I would really be the only breathing teacher there. I hadn't even heard of Wim Hof uh, until around 2012 or something like that. Mm. Um, And he's contributed great things to the world of breathing because scientists are studying him. So we're getting all kinds of knowledge now through the labs that we have never had before. So he's made a great contribution. But in the U.S., uh, there was just really me and Leslie Kazan, uh, Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh. I, I might be mispronouncing your name, Leslie. I apologize. For um, 15 years teaching breath uh, at any major event. Now I get invited to teach uh, doctors at hospitals and medical conferences, uh, corporations, and I also spoke at the uh, World Government Summit, which is uh, a once-a-year uh, event in Dubai for all the governments. You know, presidents, world leaders, kings are all there. And I was uh, able to present my work there a few years ago. Very cool. Lovely. Uh, by the way, um, as you're saying all of this, I, there was a part in your book I heard a couple of days ago, which was um, when people... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'll butcher it now, but it was something like when people don't know, they'll, they'll often nod along when they should be more curious and ask questions. So I'm trying to nod along and, and give you the cues that I'm listening, but also I don't know some of the things you're saying. So I'm very conscious of that. So I thought I'd, I'd put that out there because it was yourself you. saying that. But no, that it's, um, yeah. So, so what, what is club foot? So I just wanted to ask that. Is that, is that, well, it's a different shape? Well, since you it? can see my hands, the, 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 if these are your feet, mm. they're pointed, mm. turned p- pigeon-toed and curled in oh geez okay or sometimes the other way but either way they're they're like fists backwards and your legs are twisted Mm. so had i been born a couple hundred years ago i'd be i'd have walking around in crutches my Mm. whole life yeah wow so luckily we have some technology to to support i um i spent four or five weeks in Bali in 2019 and, and did Hatha yoga, I think every day 
um, for, for four weeks and absolutely loved it. And I'd never done it before. So, so mm. a little bit older than when you, I think, discovered it. So I was probably like 36, maybe mm-hmm. 37. Um, and w- I remember one point they say, turn to the windows that face the jungle. And you go and it's just, and there's just, you know, lovely trees everywhere. And it's so hot and now they've got the fans going. There's no air conditioning. It's just <laughs> a this big wooden hut. Um, yeah. But I, I was, I, I feel like I, I was a version of you. I was the stiffest guy and, and still am the stiffest guy. I've got years of terrible posture working on computers for corporations and, and I'm s- struggling with that now. And yoga's fell off my radar, but listening to your book, it's, it's reawoken something to me now where I need to go and find a yoga class and, and get stuck back into it. Um, so, so I don't know if you could talk a little bit about the power of yoga and what that's, what that's done for you and other people. Cause I'd, I'd love to kind of hear some, some additional uh, thoughts from yourself. Sure. Just briefly. Uh, first of all, most people don't know that when you stretch, you're triggering your relaxation response. Okay. Uh, almost all sports are flex based, uh, regimes. Now I'm not talking about, let's not talk about things like cricket or football, but let's th- talk about fitness gyms. Mm. regimens where people are just trying to get in shape and change how they look and look better in a bathing suit and so on. Uh, most of these things are flex-based. So when you lift a, a weight, you're f- usually flexing your muscle. You're bringing weights towards your body. You're, you're pushing them away, making your muscles shorter, mm. and they stick out more, which we like. It makes us look more defined. Mm. But it also makes them shorter. And when we do uh, this, these sorts of exercise, it more commonly triggers fight or flight. That's why we get pumped up. We get aggressive to push the weights. It feels like uh, we're in a fight with the weights. I used to lift weights. Um, at one point in my life, I, I know what it's like. Uh, and it really is something you get psyched up for. And you try to lift 400 pounds and you do it and you feel like you've climbed a mountain, you know. But when you stretch a muscle carefully, mm-hmm. uh, it triggers the relaxation response, which is what we need more of in our society, as you know, so we can sleep. So we're, we're not grinding our teeth at night. So we're nice to people, little side effects like that. And uh, most people don't really have a stretch regimen. If you watch people after they run, they might stretch for 45 seconds before they get in their car. If you watch weightlifters after they um, lift, uh, it's getting better now, but especially a few years ago, there was almost no stretching. And... Uh, now the fitness world is getting quite sophisticated, so I'm sure there are some regimens now where it's flex, stretch, flex, stretch, and so on. But my point is, is when you stretch your muscles, it affects your nervous system very deeply. So if you're doing uh, mostly stretching with some flexing, which is what yoga is, you're, you're both becoming stronger, more, uh, you have great endurance for holding things. And by moving in slow motion, especially if you move in slow motion, which I advocate, it makes uh, your intelligence, your body intelligence, much deeper. Um, For example, if you watch uh, martial artists, they usually practice extremely slowly. And then they go extremely fast. You can't even see them move. They're so fast. Because it's like um, the way the brain works, it... um, it's like when you take a digital photograph, let's say you've taken a photograph and now you're going to send it to someone as an email and uh, you have small, medium, large, or actual size, right? Mm-hmm. So those are all the same photograph, but there's a different amount of data on each one. Mm-hmm. 
So our experience of moving our arms in a certain way, for example, if you do it fast, it's like small. You get the, some data, but when you move extremely slow, you get a ton of data. Your brain memorizes all of this. And so it makes us more graceful. Our, our reaction time is faster. Our reflexes are better. There are so many gifts to yoga. They almost can't be counted. Mm. but I really advocate um, having a breath-centric yoga practice and to do it in slow motion as much as you can. Now, nice. one caveat, if, you, if you're frustrated, you're angry, you've had a terrible day, practice fast for about 10 or 15 minutes, fast, and then slow it way down, and then it feels really good to do that. But sometimes it's good to practice hard for a few minutes just to get the aggression out of your body. Mm. Yeah. Hey, do you know that... I'm shocked that I hadn't internalized that because it, it, it seems like, oh, that makes sense. I hadn't thought about stretching as a relaxation. I know that sounds so crazy to say out loud, but I, I, I've got a little gym in, in the garage outside and I'll go and do the weights now because I'm trying to build a little bit of strength. Um, I I'm not stretching afterwards. I'll just come back in the house and I'll feel pumped. I'm like, oh, yeah. Um, and, and I enjoy that feeling, that testosterone yeah. rush, but I'm not yeah. balancing, balancing it out. Oh, my gosh. Um, so, I'm keen to get into meditation and, and breath work and, and reference your, um, your TED, your TED talk. Um, and we can link to that below so people can go and click on that link and, and go and watch that. It's a really great talk. Thanks. Um, you, you, you reference in there something along the lines of people trying to sit down and meditate, but their mind's really busy. And, and I, I've mentioned this many times on this podcast, I, I really struggle, um, to meditate and to the point where if I'm using the Headspace app, let's say, I'll think it's broken because they haven't, he hasn't said anything for a while and I have to go and check it. I can't handle the silence. I'm like, right, where is it? Okay. No, it isn't broken. Um, <laughs> and so I had a, I had a lovely chap on here a couple of days ago. He's wrote a book called um, uh, Draw Breath and it's a beautiful book where you draw while you're breathing. It's beautiful, beautiful. Um, and um, he was saying, think about some some breath work beforehand, which was really obvious. I hadn't thought about that. He was saying, do some box breathing, maybe some coherent breathing. So I would love to get your thoughts on, so rather than me just trying to sit down or somebody watching this and they've got this, you know, really busy brain um, and they haven't meditated for years and they're trying to meditate, what, what steps could you help us get to to get there? Well, you're absolutely right. The amount of people that believe they want to meditate is probably 90% of the population. Mm. The the amount of people that actually meditate every day is probably 1% of the population. So there's a little bit of a gap there. And uh, I've asked, I've gone to conventions and asked people to raise their hand. Raise your hand if you believe meditation is good for you. And virtually every hand raises. Mm. And then I say, now be honest, raise your hand if you meditate three times a week. Mm. And, you know, seven hands go up. And then they all laugh really hard because we're laughing at ourselves. Yeah. And the thing is, is if you have a frustrating life, a frustrating situation in your life, you're working hard, you're stressed, you're, or you have anxiety, or you're depressed, your mind is in a storm. Mm. It's this chaotic storm. And to sit down and try to meditate is virtually not possible. And we just get frustrated with ourselves and feel ashamed that we can't do it. And then we turn the TV on or something. Uh, so that's very counterproductive. I always advise that people do a practice like a yoga practice first before meditating. Mm -hmm. Uh, or if you don't have time, just do your breathing practice and then meditate. Because the breathing practice and or the yoga practice will start to slow down your mind, will start to calm the storm, calmer and calmer and calmer. So then when you say, okay, now I'm going to sit, it's easy. There's no effort. You want to sit. 
I, I used to judge my yoga classes, which I taught every day, uh, by how eager people were to get up and leave the room. Mm. So I felt, for example, when people say, what do you do when your people sh- uh, fidget in Shavasana, final relaxation? I said, they don't fidget. That means I taught the class right. There's no fidgeting. Right. Because their, their nervous system is calm now. Then if I say, now let's sit up and meditate just for five minutes, they all sit up and they all fall into meditation. Mm-hmm. And then I say, thank you very much. You know, I conclude class. People don't want to get up. That's when you've taught a good class because they don't want to leave the stillness that they have finally achieved. So it's effortless to meditate. So do your practice first, especially breath work, then meditate, and you'll have a different experience. Mm, okay. And in terms of the breath work, what, what, what sort of style or modality would you recommend? Well, if you're doing a yoga class, you should be doing the ocean breathing the whole time. Right. So that's a half hour, hour, hour and a half of uh, slow, steady, deep breathing mm. with the exhales being a little longer than the inhales. Mm. Always remember that, that... Uh, when we exhale, it tends to track, trigger the relaxation response. So that's why, um, for example, singing Om, it's not the word mm-hmm. that affects you. It's the fact that you're going, which takes about two seconds to inhale. And then you sing for about 10 to 30 seconds, depending on your depth of breath. Mm-hmm. So there are these really long exhales. Inhale quick, really long exhale. And that triggers a relaxation response. So you feel more and more happy and blissful and uh, like everything is fine. I'll just enjoy just listening to you talk about it. It just makes me want to go off and do that now. So uh. (laughs) (laughs) Um, can we talk a bit about grief um, and stored emotions? Um, I I finally got back to, I'm, I'm a, I'm in love with the sauna. It's, it's, it's my, it's my church. It's the only time that I can, what it is for me is you, 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 we're not naked in the UK. If you go to my girlfriend's Polish, we go to Poland, you're naked in the, in the European songs here. We're not, but you still got, you know, you're virtually Mm. naked. You do not have your cell phone with you, which is obviously fantastic. And I've had some of the best conversations I've ever had in the song because everyone's sitting there, you know, um, and they've got no distractions. And so you end up having quite deep and you, and you, you know, virtually naked. You have these, so I, I love all of that and the, and the benefits you get from the heat, but I also love the time alone in the sauna because I, I can meditate so much, meditate. I can think clearer and I can, mm-hmm. I can just relax in that heat. Um, but what I've noticed, it was a year and a bit since my last sauna experience because of uh, pandemic and, and whatnot. There was a lot of emotion that started to, to bubble up. But whereas you were saying earlier that um, during your yoga, you could, you could have the tears. And I've had tears when I've done Wim Hof breathing in five years ago. I feel like I might even be a, a stage removed from that where I can't even get to the tears stage. There's just some, something trapped. Whenever I go for a hot bath, I start to feel an emotion. But it's, mm. no, 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 no. Put it, and, and it's like almost, no, 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 put that back down again. So mm. I, could, could I get some thoughts from you around maybe what's going on there and any advice on how to, to help maybe shift some of that? Because I'm sure I'm not alone there. I have so much to say about this. I could spend four hours talking about just the subject. In fact, probably a hundred hours. So I'm going to try to cover as much as I would like to cover in about um, one minute. So, so here it goes. First of all, uh, our society knows nothing about how to process grief. 
Northern European society, especially, and all of the offshoots like the United States, Australia, etc. Um, we were terrible, terrible at uh, helping each other when we go through crisis or understanding how to ask for help. Since you're, you're British, uh, a British friend of mine who's about my age, he said, um, uh, in a candid moment after knowing him for years, he finally said, you know, I've never told you this, but when I was uh, eight years old, I had a sister who was 12, and I loved my sister more than anyone on earth. And then she died. And after the funeral, my parents sat me down and said, we will never speak of this again. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of training that so many people have had, and if not verbal, simply by example, but watching our parents, how they deal with crisis. Mm -hmm. That's how we learn to deal with crisis. And then, of course, there's the schoolyard. You get to the schoolyard at, you know, 7 to 12 years old, you really learn what, you know, do not cry in front of your schoolmates. They're going to tease you. They're going to call you names. They're going to shun you. Uh, Do not show fear. Do not show tears. Do not show shame. Do not say you're lonely. These are things you cannot express. And uh, so we really just don't talk about it. We don't heal these things. We try to circumvent any kind of grief, meaning go, go around it instead of go through it. And um, we, we don't really share it with our, with our mates, with our friends. And then we wonder why we get anxiety and depression and why the recent study in the UK of mental health that was done in 2018, I think, it's the biggest health study that was ever done. You can see it in the April edition of The Guardian, 2018. Okay. So the Guardian, it really, they released it through The Guardian, and that was mm-hmm. the biggest health study ever done, in, I think, in the Western world. I think they interviewed something like 9,000 people. Okay. And 30% of them considered suicide in the last year. Oh, wow. A full third of the population. Mm-hmm. One out of six are self-harming. Mm-hmm. When you get to 14-year-old girls, it's one out of four. The number goes up. So the amount of anxiety and alienation and depression and suicidal thoughts that our society was feeling before COVID was just going uh, uh, through the roof. It's a huge problem. And I, I was at a conference. There were about 400 people there. And I said, raise your hand if you've learned CPR in your life. You know, and f- f- depending on what country you're from, CPR is a heart massage when someone falls over with a heart attack and their heart stops and you try to get their heart to start again. Uh, we call it CPR in the United States. So about 75% of the room raised their hand out of 400 people. Mm-hmm. So then I said, okay, hands down. Now raise your hand if when you were a child or a young person, you were taught how to deal with your own grief and the grief of others. Mm-hmm. And not a single hand went up. Mm. So then I said, well, that, what that means is if someone, someone's heart stops, we know what to do. Mm. If someone's heart breaks, we have no idea. We're absolutely ignorant. Mm. And as I said, there's a great cost to this. This is why we have the pub. Basically throughout history, especially Northern European societies, we've had the pub and the church. Mm. That's it. There was no yoga classes. There were no yoga classes, no breathing classes, no Qigong, no self-help books, no spa days, mm-hmm. you know, there, no, no cycle uh, analysis. We were just on our own for centuries. And I think we're still carrying that culture with us. 
And just like a lot of things that have needed to change, because ultimately they aren't healthy for us, that has to change. We have to learn how to grieve and that it's not unmanly or un, doesn't mean you're not strong. You're allowed to not be strong for a few minutes, a few hours, a few days. I like to say it's okay not to be okay. Yes. And when you're going through a crisis, your friends should run to you, not run away from you. Mm. If you're in the hospital and you wake up after an accident or a serious surgery, your room should be full of your friends. But people don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. I have also asked groups this, again, 400 people. Raise your hand if when your friends are in crisis, you avoid them because you don't know what to say, you don't know what to do, and you think everything is going to be really awkward. Yeah. And everybody raises their hand. Yeah. So that's where we are in our society. So to me, to learn how to grieve and to stand by your friends when they grieve would change our society mm. vastly. Mm. The reason I've become interested in this is because, uh, not, not only because of my own life, my own psychology, but in teaching breathing all those years, why do people start bursting into tears in my breathing class, as you experienced? Mm. And then what happens afterward? Is it the same mm. as if they're just sitting in a room remembering something bad that happened to them? No, it's not the same. When you, when you do a breathing practice and you have this release of the past, of the grief, of your memory, it is in some way healing. Mm. But the next step beyond the breathing is but will people sit beside you when you grieve? Mm. Or are you going to want to go back to your room or your cabin or your car because you don't want anybody to see you grieve? So to me, the way I'd like to see society change and what I'm, how I'm working on contributing to that is we learn breath work. Everybody does breath work every day, even just 15 minutes. I prefer 30, but 15 minutes would make a difference. And we learn that uh, grieving is not a weakness. Mm. Uh, am I suggesting that we just start bursting into tears at the drop of a hat? No. Sometimes you, you should hold it in. But when it's not an emergency and the kids aren't watching you, although sometimes it'd be good for the kids to see you, how you grieve as well, um, then you grieve. And you grieve, we grieve together. And that's what makes friendships stronger. That's what makes relationships stronger. You always remember the people that stand beside you. In the military, certainly in the American military, uh, we have this term called no man left behind. I think it's no person left behind now. And uh, they mean that. They mean that if you're wounded on the battlefield, they're coming for you. Mm. You can count on that. And you know what's amazing? I just interviewed a lieutenant colonel in the army a couple of days ago. He said, if you're in a gunfight with your unit, and let's say uh, a couple of guys get killed, and the, the unit's going to be very upset about it. You're, there's a very strong bond between you all. You know each other very well, so they're mm -hmm. likely your friends. You come back together, and you have to get together in a group with your officers and discuss it, and talk mm -hmm. about it, and grieve. And it's not an option. It's mandatory. Right. So the military... They acknowledge that this is going to be healthier if we get together as a unit mm. and go through the grieving process together. Mm. But in civilian society, we don't have that. No. Oof. Do you do you think that our trajectory is going the right way 
in terms of us getting better at dealing with, or do you think it's plateaued or do you think it's getting worse? Where do you see us at the minute? I think it's getting better. Although I think, I think there's been some great errors in parenting in the last 30 years. Uh, there's been some experimentation, mm-hmm. uh, for example, trying to give four-year-olds all these choices when they're four mm-hmm. and you should just really just tell them what to do or give them two choices, you know, you mm-hmm. can do this or that. And kids, Parents are too often trying to treat their children like they're adults when they're not adults and they need uh, guidance and leadership from their parents. Mm. Uh, Well-meaning experiments, but uh, failed experiments nonetheless. And that's why we have an epidemic of anxiety amongst children now. Mm. We did not have that 30 years ago. So that's the main thing that, that and social media are the main things that have changed society. But the other good thing about the way more modern parenting has had a positive effect is teaching kids that they can cry and hold each other. So I I have heard of more like high school kids, 15, 16, will look after each other more than in my time where we were just laughed at at any kid who started crying. Mm -hmm. So I think there is uh, some trajectory in that direction. And that's good, but not enough. And even in the breathing world, amongst breathing specialists, there's not a lot of knowledge about this or um, work done in this regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, there's plenty of books you'll find on grief, plenty on breathing, mm-hmm. plenty on anxiety. But what I'm writing about is the three altogether as one subject, because I think they are one subject. Mm-hmm. For example, someone who starts to have a panic attack, if you encourage them to cry they'll they won't have a panic attack they'll just start crying and the panic attack is over the panic attack is pushing your emotions down as they're coming up that's what a panic attack is okay so if you can get a release if you can get something out yeah because i've heard from from other people that as well um you you need to exhale because sometimes your your breath is full and and you try and take more breath in and that's also causing some panic so i I think it was dr bliss ranch saying just just let's get a breath out because you're you're kind of stuck but you're also saying if if don't suppress it let's get those tears out if if you can yeah because uh an event which would normally make you cry or almost cry triggers all the other grief you have inside Mm. and it feels overwhelming and so we have this automatic response of no no push it down push it down push it down and then it comes out as a panic attack people i've worked with i've worked with so many people who get multiple panic attacks a day Mm. and after sometimes working with them for one weekend they don't get panic attacks anymore that's great yeah no no medication necessary in in most cases one thing that really upsets me is um when people say you need to be strong so you don't show your emotions. I had a had a, a person very close to me that was going for an operation, and um, you know, I said, you know, I just want to say, you know, I love you and I hope you're okay. And then somebody texted me afterwards and said, "Can't do that. You need to be strong. They need to be strong." And I, it was quite upsetting because I think, no, th- that might be the last time we speak. We should That's be right. more honest, and we should be able to have a big cry together. But it was like, no, 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 we we can't. We can't show those emotions. Um, it's it, it's it's a real tragedy. So I I personally feel like um when i'm around people that aren't um let, let me rephrase it sorry so when i'm around normal people today that don't necessarily do breath work or it's family member or something i feel the awkwardness because i feel their awkwardness so it's kind of reflecting into me but when i was on the uh, the wim hof retreat um we'd had somebody that recently been through a couple of um 
people close to them that had suicides, um, you know, ended their lives. And so um, about an hour into this deep breathing, this one person just erupted into, into almost a, not a scream, but a guttural Wailing. noise. Wailing. Yes. And what we all done, there's 20 of us in there, we instinctively went and just like touched him. We were like, would hold his, hold his shoulder, put a hand here or here. Uh, and there was no awkwardness. There was a really safe space. And we were crying all together. And there was a big emotional release that happened. And I didn't, I was like, this is the most natural thing I've ever experienced. And we were all cuddling at the end. And it was mostly men as well. I think there's only one, one woman there. So, uh, and, you know, some quite beefy men, mm. that, you know, tough men, but not, all the ego was gone. But I, I don't, I personally struggle to see that in day-to-day life. Like if I was with my family now, it would be awkward. So any, any, how could, any way to bridge that gap of getting through the awkwardness? Yeah, it's education. Um, in, in a breathing retreat, my breathing retreats, uh, Wim Hofs and many, many other breathing teachers, um, because everyone is bursting their shields apart with their breath, and these shields we wear around our chest, so to speak, this armor. Mm. Uh, I mean, our thorax is what it's called, and it actually means breastplate. Right. So uh, when we do our breath work, it... Uh, it takes a breastplate off and we're more vulnerable, more exposed. And so when somebody opens up, it triggers the grief in other people too. And they'll start crying as well, like you said, mm. and you end up grieving together. I think that's what we're meant to do. I think mm. instinctively, uh, and if you do some study of uh, more ancient tribes, uh, even some that are in existence now, but Aboriginal tribes, they do that. They grieve together as a village. Mm. And uh, you've heard uh, it takes a village to raise a child. Mm. I think we need to create villages again, not cities. Yeah. And now that we can work online, we should move out of cities and into villages. Mm. Now that's part of it because that's proximity. Yes. But then, of course, it doesn't matter if everybody stays inside their house and doesn't come out in the village when they have a crisis. Then we need to learn how to grieve with each other and how to be with each other. And that's why I'm writing my book. Uh, I have what to say, what not to say, mm. uh, because most of us don't know. And uh, how to even how to sit proximity. For example, I teach my students in a situation like you just described, do exactly what you just said, but don't sit and face them. Right. Because people, some people, I mean, that person erupted into this whale. But if someone is just starting to cry and you sit in front of them and stare at them, they can pull back it can, because it's so new to them. Mm. Uh, it's intimidating to have somebody staring at them. Yeah. So we sit to the sides, behind, and in front, uh, about two meters in front with our backs to the group. And I, I've had students who are in the training, they say, well, doesn't it feel strange to, have, um, to turn your back on your friends? And then the person who just went through it raised them and they say, no, it felt safe. It felt like a wall a wall of protection. Mm. And um, I use this example again from the military because I watch people burst into tears when I explain this. Um, uh, My same friend who I uh, interviewed, Lieutenant Colonel in the Army, was in three wars. And he said there was one time they were in Iraq and um, there was an ambush and they got into this gunfight, which uh, in a few minutes was over and they had won. But one of their guys was down with a pretty serious wound. And the medic ran over to the guy and signaled to the officer, my friend, that 
he was down and needed attention. And the order was given, and this man was encircled by the whole unit with their weapons aimed out at the perimeter while the medic worked on the man in total silence. Everyone was totally silent and focused on protecting this man. And I said, how did that man feel, the soldier? He said, safest place in the world. Yeah. Because those were all his brothers. Mm. And as soon as they knew he needed help, they created this circle of safety, you see. Mm. And they, but they had their backs to him. Yeah. But they're protecting him. Yeah. So the way we, we teach it is you sit in front of them, you sit beside them and behind them, but you don't sit and face them until maybe they uh, they start really breaking down and crying. Then you can start hugging them if they want that. Not everybody does. Mm. Um, so you have to be sensitive to that. But the biggest thing, uh, Mike, that people have a hard time with, and I've learned a, a way to explain it, I think that will help, is this. Um, people go and visit a friend who's, in crisis, let's say it's a health crisis, like uh, they're, they have serious cancer or something, and people don't know what to say or do or how to, how to act. And they say, I just, I'm afraid I'm gonna make everything worse, you know? Mm. I'm, afraid, I'm afraid I'm gonna just be awkward, they're gonna be awkward. So I put it in this context. Imagine that, um, imagine that my, um, my best friend, John, just got a call and he found out I had an accident. I'm in the hospital and my leg was badly broken. So now I'm in the hospital. I had surgery on my leg and my, I'm, in the, I'm in a big cast and I'm laying in my bed with my leg up in the air hanging from something. You know, I'm going to be in the hospital a week or two. Easy. And so my friend, John, comes to visit me. Now, when I see John walk in, like he's taking time off work to come visit me. Am I happy to see him? I'm so happy to see him. Do I think he's going to make my leg feel better? No, I don't. Do I think he's going to heal my leg? No, I don't. Is it meaningful to me that he's here? A hundred percent. Because it means that even in my broken state, he still cares about me. Yeah. And he'll help if he can. It's the same thing when someone's going through an emotional crisis. They don't expect you to fix it. Mm. They don't even expect you to make them feel better. But it's meaningful to them to have you just sitting even in silence with them. Yeah. It means everything to them. Mm -hmm. They will never forget you. It's better to tell somebody, this is going to be really hard, what you're going through. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. No, that's really nice. Yeah. I, yeah. It's, you, you, can, you can set the tone of how that, that goes either one of you, I guess. So if you're the person visiting the person hospital, you can set the tone and or, so, so anybody listening to this or watching this, I feel like that's, that, that's, that's a good gift because you're right. You, you can just set that, you can just recalibrate it and go, look, let's just, I'm here for you no matter what. And, and it almost right. face that awkwardness is probably the wrong word. Uncomfortableness. I'm not sure what it is, but it's almost addressing it and going, let's just address that. That's the, the situation, but I'm still here for you. Yeah, no, I like that, Max. Don't underestimate your presence in mm. someone's life. If they love you and you love them, your presence, just your presence, means mm. the world to them. Yeah. But I don't think we believe that. Mm. I think we undervalue our presence. And the time as well, isn't it? Because our time is limited. It's the one resource we can't really get more of. 
That's and right. so to, to and, and the proximity and making the time to go somewhere. Yeah. We, we, we undervalue that. And our attention is so freely given to social media now and to apps and scrolling, you know, we don't <laughs> value our attention, do we? It's just this thing that oh. we can, Oh, I need to fill a few minutes. I'll go on, on Instagram and I'm, I'm as guilty. Um, just something you said, I, I, I feel felt the power of this well, which is there's something about non face to face, um, relationship building. And I mentioned to you before we hit record that I took a pilgrimage across Spain a couple of years ago. I had some of the best conversations of my life because you're just walking side by side with somebody. And so don't get me wrong, there's wonderful uh, power of eye to eye contact and that's Mm -hmm. got its whole other, but there's this whole other side of let's just go for a walk Mm -hmm. because it just takes some of the pressure away. Uh, And I had relationship connections that you would think took years to build, but really were just days of eight hour walks together. So I, yeah, I really see the power of that. Nice. That must've been an amazing experience. I really recommend it. And and people don't have to do the whole 500 miles. You can go and do a a weekend, you know, you can start in France and and, and fly out of Pamplona a couple of days later. So it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful, and there's a great film by uh, Martin Sheen called The Way. So I don't know if people have seen that, but it's, it's a a great thing and it's just gives you some headspace, but um, there's something um, there's a question you can ask on the Camino uh, and it's a question that will get you a connection almost with anybody, which is why are you walking the Camino? And everybody's got a reason. Now for some people it's a fitness thing, yeah. um, but most, most people it's not, it's a spiritual thing or I need to take a break from life thing. And there's a, a great book um, by an Australian author who did the Camino. I'm sorry, I can't remember his name, but he said, you, you look at the Camino as a life within a life. So you start off new, you don't really have a routine. You're very young in it. And as you get towards the end, because you finish in a place called Santiago, which is where there's a big cathedral and St. James's uh, remains are meant to be there. And you, that's what the pilgrimage you're walking to. Um, as you approach Santiago 30 days in, you know that this life's about to end. So, so the upcoming death of this life, and it's just this lovely little epoch of there's a life there from start to finish. And you even know it's going to end because it can't go on forever because you're going to get to the the final part. So yeah, I could, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful experience I recommend for, for people. And you don't need to be super fit either. You can take your time and, you know, you can do all sorts of stuff, but I digress. Um, I, I wanted to ask you one last thing, and then we can talk about any other bits that you'd like to talk about, which was um, spiritual side. Because when I, I got your book, I was expecting wrongly, from my point of view, uh, a book about breathing exercises. And, and, and so far, I'm probably only about a third of the way into, into this book. And it's, I'm sure people have said this to you in the past. It's, it's exactly the book I needed to, to listen to next. I'm, I'm a listener, not a reader, so mm-hmm. I'm, as I said at the start. So your voice, the stories, I was like, this is exactly what I needed. Um, and I would define myself probably as agnostic, leaning more towards the um, uh, you know, uh, atheist side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But this book has just sparked some interest for me. And there was one particular bit, and I'm sorry if I say it a little bit wrong, it was around even when Jesus is on the crucifix, there, was, there were Roman soldiers gambling next to him that couldn't see the uh, uh, saintly saintliness of him. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I've, I've probably butchered that. But um, it really got me thinking, around um so two days ago i went i went just for a walk to the shop and i had that in my head and i just started looking at people with a completely different reframe and going i wonder what that person's like and i wonder what that person's like and and that person seems really um agitated and this other person just seems like they're on the phone and this other person just seemed really tired mm-hmm. with, with life and and it, it was a wonderful gift because i've never looked at people 
like that before. And I was looking out to see, could I see a saintly person? Sadly, not at that point, but it just gave me a reframe. Could you talk a little bit about the spiritual side for somebody like me that has, and it's a tough one because I've spent the last nearly 40 years going, there is nothing else. You die and you go into a dirt hole and, and to have that kind of shaken a little bit is, is very uncomfortable because you kind of want to, you, of course, you want to believe there's so much more going on. And I've had breath experiences where I've mm. communicated with something, but then part of the left brain goes, no, no, no. It's just the brain running out of oxygen. Mm. Calm down. There's nothing else. So as somebody that's wrote that book and, and talks about the spiritual side, is there anything else you can give us? Again, I know we're, we're very good running out of time here. So apologies. And this might be a whole other conversation we need to have, but just to hear a few words from you on the, the spiritual side of life would be wonderful. Yes, of course. Uh, some people have spiritual experiences. And once you've had a real spiritual experience, then it becomes experiential knowledge. It's no longer an opinion, a, a belief. Mm. You, don't, you no longer say, I believe in this. You say, I know this because I experienced it. I'll give you a really great uh, example of this. So a friend of mine, she was living in Boston. Her family was living in L.A., 1994 earthquake happened. Mm. So she wake, she wakes up. She was waking up late, I think, and uh, wakes up and thinks, earthquake, Los Angeles. Gets up, mm. turns the TV on, massive earthquake in Los Angeles. is the biggest one we've had in the last 50 years or so. And um, how do you explain that? Mm. But it wasn't just her. You hear all kinds, that happened to many people. When there's a, crisis like a flood earthquake tornado um even 9-11 people tend to wake up and know that their loved one is in trouble across the country across the world mm -hmm. so okay that doesn't doesn't mean that doesn't mean there's an afterlife that doesn't mean there's a god mm -hmm. but it does mean that there's more to what connects us than we think there is carl jung i believe called it the collective unconscious where it's like we have our, our singular consciousness but we also have like an internet mm. with our community, with the world, but especially with our community, which is why from a distance, sometimes we can just know that someone we love is in trouble. These things alone should cause us to explore these things, to explore what it means to be a human being in a deeper way. Mm. Um, uh, some people have dreams where they dream something that happens before it happens, mm -hmm. maybe only once in their life, maybe frequently, it's different for everyone. Maybe only when they were a teenager for a short period of time, that seems to be when a lot of these sort of gifts come up briefly. That makes no sense because how could you possibly see something that hasn't happened yet mm -hmm. unless time isn't linear? And what are the physicists saying now? Oh, time isn't linear. <laughs> That's what the, the, the right. scientists are now saying. The, the mathematicians are saying time is not linear. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying therefore there are aliens or therefore there's gods. You know, we don't have to jump that far, mm -hmm. but we have to say maybe there's more to reality than we know. Mm -hmm. I mean, even if you just look at our senses, what we see is nothing compared to what a hawk sees mm -hmm. or uh, even colors. There are colors that we can't see that other uh, animals can see, ultraviolet, infrared. Uh, c colors that we now know exist because of instruments have always existed. Mm -hmm. There are sounds that we cannot hear. In fact, most sounds we can't hear. They're too, either too low or too high. 
but elephants can hear them, whales can hear them. So even in our material world, what we call the concrete material world, it's a sliver of the actual world. We're perceiving just an iota of what actually is going on. So I think we need to drop our, our hubris, uh, our arrogance about what is real and what isn't, and also be willing to say, I don't know. Like when people ask me sometimes, do I believe in life after death? I say, I'm not sure. I don't have to have an opinion on it. I think there's a lot of evidence that there is life after death, but no one's actually proved it yet. Therefore, I don't know. But most people are not comfortable with, I don't know. It's either yes or no. It's binary. Yep. Yes or no. Black or white. Uh, uh, Labor Department, Labor, Labor Party or um, Tories, you know, yep. whatever, Republican and a Democrat. Mm. So uh, that's what I try to point out in my book. I tried to make uh, Life Worth Breathing, the book you listen to, a very spiritual book without ever really talking about spirituality. Mm. Because if you talk about and, and think about and feel things like forgiveness and beauty, not, not lipstick and makeup beauty, but the beauty from within a human being, grace, um, kindness, compassion. Uh, when you walk through a crowd, instead of judging how people are dressed and what kind of jewelry they have on, as I said in my book, try to find a saint. Mm-hmm. Scour the, the 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 crowd for a saint when you're in the mall. You might find one. Saints have to buy shoes too. Yeah. <laughs> and even if you never find one, the way you look at people is different. Mm-hmm. Because instead of scanning their clothes, their their body, their face, their jewelry, you're looking into their eyes. You're looking at their countenance. To use an mm-hmm. old English word, their countenance. And so people react to us differently. It changes the initial reaction uh, interaction if we actually start talking to that person. Mm-hmm. It's like he looked at me unlike anyone who's ever looked at me. It's because I'm looking for a saint. I wanted to look inside you and see what you are, who you are, as opposed to, wow, she looks great in that dress, you know? Mm-hmm. But, but who is she? She might be the most interesting person I ever meet yeah. or speak with. Or that person over there who's not so nice to look at might be the most important person I meet in my lifetime in terms of how they affect me in a conversation. Mm. But if we're always looking at the same things, we miss most people as they walk by us. You'd miss, uh, as I like to say to Christians, Jesus Christ could walk right by you. You'd never see him. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, a, a quote I heard, which was really sad, but so true, which was um, we ask people what they do for a living so we can work out how much respect to give them. And that really made me sad because, like, oh, I do that. You know, if somebody's a big CEO versus somebody that works in a local supermarket, I'm going to treat them differently. So, so just knowing that was a really powerful stop. Yes. Let's look at people differently because that's not the right thing to do. Um, and, and then building on top of that, the stuff that's in, in your book. So, no, it's it's uh, it's it's made it more fun, actually, just to go out and about and start looking at people differently. Because, again, 40 years in, I'm, there's a, a different reframing now. So thank you. You're welcome. And and I love what you said about the El Camino because the reason you got into such amazing conversations is because you're not saying, so what do you do for a living? Yeah. You're saying basically what crisis or epiphany brought mm. you here? Yes. And if we, if we approach people in London the same way, instead of what, so what do you do? Say, 
So, so what crisis or epiphany is driving you at this point in your life? We'd have more interesting conversations. Yes, yes, we would. You're right. It's, it's, it's going a bit more deep than surface level and, and asking people more. Yeah. And, and I've always found people open up with the right questions. People open up really easily. Uh, with, the, with the standard questions, you get a standard answer back, don't you? So it's it's being able you to really? leave. Yeah. Um, would you give us a little flavor of what you're working on now? I know you've touched on, on some of it, but would you like to share a bit about the book you're working on and, and some of the things you're doing in today's society? Yes. Well, uh, because of COVID, of course, I'm teaching through uh, an online platform rather than in person for the last year and a half or so, unfortunately. I mean, I like doing it, but I don't like doing it exclusively. I still mm-hmm. miss live audiences and and uh, teaching retreats and things like that. I'm supposed to start that up again in September. Uh, I have a tour of Central Europe, uh, Switzerland, uh, Austria, and Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. Um My main focus recently has been on this new book, uh, which is currently the same title as my um, TED Talk you mentioned, which is called Breathe to Heal. Now, that's my working title. The publisher may end up changing it. But essentially, as I mentioned earlier, it's about the correlation between uh, grief, anxiety, and uh, connection or intimacy. Mm. And that uh, if we... If we trap our grief, if we congest it, stuff it, we end up with anxiety and our panic attacks, but we also have a really hard time connecting with people. That's why we kill intimacy in its Mm -hmm. crib, because we don't know how to make ourselves vulnerable and to trust each other, because we're constantly putting armor on uh, to both protect ourselves, but also to hold back, hold in uh, all this past that's unfelt, undealt with, unreconciled. And so to me, breathing work has led me to, to this uh, one one year at a time. Uh, and after 26 years, I, I've had great success, as I said, helping people who have depression, anxiety, and panic attacks uh, to alleviate these. So not, not, to, not so they feel a little better today, but so they don't have it anymore. People think that once they have anxiety, they have to live with it for the rest of your, your life. I'm telling you, you don't. There are some exceptions always to, to everything. But in general, I would say that you do not have to live with anxiety or panic attacks at all. But there's some steps that you have to go through to live like that. It means we have to live differently and interact with each other differently. Learn to to communicate during crisis and after crisis and um, to to build a community, uh, a breath-based community, basically, a breath and a truth-based community. We will have different life. We'll have different communities. We'll have a different society. And so my book is the beginning of that. Yeah. Oh, I look forward to, to reading that one next then, Max. Um, and I'd, I'd love to get you back on maybe once uh, once the book's out and we can have a, a conversation about that too. I would love to talk with you again. Anytime, yeah. just let me know. Oh, thank you. Um, so, so for everybody watching, um, I'm going to link down below in the description um, to, to Max's website. 
um, to your courses um, and to your books. So people can very easily just scroll down now below um, and find everything that they need to for you, Max. Um, and, and I would highly encourage it. And, and as I said at the start, if you've not got this sense from me already, everybody, um, I'm absolutely loving this audio book. So I, I highly recommend um, getting involved in that as well. Uh, anything else that you wanted to, to reference, Max, before we, we call it a day? Well, thank you. Uh, they can, like you said, they can find everything on my uh, website, but I do encourage people to go to YouTube and look at my TED Talk, uh, Breathe to Heal. Yeah. It has something like 2.6 million views now, which is unusual for something that talks about something like this. Mm-hmm. But it's because it struck a nerve in, in the world and people just keep passing it on to their friends uh, because I think everybody is in agreement that this is something that we need to change and we can change. Mm-hmm. Oh, wonderful. So yeah, and, and that will be down below as well. Thank Lovely. Well, 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 thank you so much for your time, Max. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, it's always funny when you, you get to meet somebody, even though it's virtually, when you've had them mm-hmm. in your ears for a good few hours. So it's, uh, it's, it's, been, it's been a real pleasure. Um, everybody, thank you so much for watching. Uh, take a deep breath and uh, we'll see you on the next Breathcast. Take care, everyone. Thank you, Thank Max. you so much, Mike. Thank you. Okay, thanks for watching. Uh, Take a deep breath. Thanks for watching our breathcast. I hope you enjoyed the guest that we just had. Um, Just a couple of quick messages. Thank you for sticking through to the end. Really appreciate it. If you enjoyed that and you haven't subscribed, please click that subscribe button um, and leave us a question or a comment because it helps the Google algorithm. um, And it also means that we can interact and other people get involved and answer questions. So, So leave us a little question. That would be incredible. On Instagram, you can follow me at takeadeepbreath.co.uk and we've got regular content there. And finally, in the link below, we have a breath store. So what is that? So we have taken some of our top videos. I say we, it's me. I take some of our top videos um, and um, converted them into an MP3 format. Um, And for just a couple of dollars, four or five dollars, you can go to this little store. You can go through PayPal or through your debit or credit cards, all secure, legit. um, And you can um, buy one of our MP3s. Uh, And that way you're supporting the channel. But not only that, you get to keep the MP3 forever. There's no ads. There's no anything else going on. So you can listen to it on your phone, on the aeroplane when there's no signal. um, And that's yours to keep forever. So yeah, that's down below. And that's our breath store, uh, which has got I think eight or nine different uh, breathing exercises on there. We're adding more um, as we go. Um, And that's it. So yeah, so thank you so much from me. um, And we hope to see you on the next exercise or the next breath cast. And if you're finishing this right now and you're thinking, got a few minutes spare, I'm not sure what to do, then try one of the breathing exercises. Box breathing is a lovely way just to help slow things down and relax us. You could do some alternate nostril breathing. Just go and have a look at the channel, look at the playlist and pick something for you. Give yourself a little treat. um, And we will see you on the next video. Thank you very much. Cheers.